Welcome to the Soul Grit Podcast. I'm Ann Taylor McNeese, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I also love Jesus, and I'm passionate about all things gospel and therapy. I created Soul Grit to be at the intersection of mental health and Christian faith. Christ followers need a place to ask questions and get answers about mental health. Join me as we dive into real stories and real questions from people who want to honor God with their hearts, souls, and minds. Hey, welcome back to the Soul Grit Podcast. This is Anne, and I'm here today with my friend Gary Kwan, who is actually a classmate from my days at Western Seminary. And we um, became friends, wow, back in the earlier 2000s and um, went through our program together. And now Gary is working um, as a therapist, but also as a professor for students who are learning the therapy profession. But today he's here to talk to us about his time working in the jails. I did have a request for somebody from someone who listens to the podcast regularly. She wanted to hear about what mental health treatment or services are like in the prison system. I don't actually know somebody who's in uh, like, like the state prison, but I did know Gary and I know that you've worked in the jails for a while. So welcome Gary. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you, man. It's great to see you again. I know it's been quite some time and, uh, hope our paths cross in person again at some point. Uh, for sure. name is Gary Kwan. I hope this, uh, podcast is edifying to the person that requested the topic. Yeah. I've been a licensed therapist for almost eight years now. I've been involved in the field as an internist, uh, for over 14 uh, wear a variety of hats. I, I teach right now uh, at three different colleges, actually four different colleges, not to humble brag, but I'm um, <laughs> also uh, doing uh, group therapy, which is my passion and love. And then my other passion and love, which is aside from ministry, is actually going into the jails and teaching, <clears throat> excuse me, teaching substance uh, abuse, addiction and counseling uh, to right now over 30 students, both male and female. So it's been rather interesting a uh, couple of months and always on my keeps me always always on my toes and I, I just appreciate that uh, God's provided the opportunity to do this stuff meaningfully yeah yeah so I was thinking that it's been you know at least a decade maybe 12 years since we really got to sit down and talk about anything but over that course of time I've you know follow you on social media things like that and I've seen some pretty funny crazy stories coming out of the jails <laughs> and outside so, of the jail <laughs> yeah and that too <laughs> and so um some of the questions that i thought it would be interesting to talk about today is just what role do you think that mental health plays in uh, people spending time incarcerated hmm. uh, i've been wondering about that question since actually uh, earlier in the week and and i, I think there's two clear paths that that I'd like to share with your, your, uh, uh, your people. Um, one, we have a system where essentially we are incarcerating people that are severely mentally ill and it, it speaks to a toxic system. And again, not to blame any particular government entity or any, uh, jail folks or even mental health folks. But I, I think if we step outside of ourselves and, and look, um, we no longer have uh, a great solution for our severely mentally ill population. And oftentimes they are recycled through our jails and our homeless shelters and uh, county uh, county sort of sponsored housing. So that that's one group that continues to to be perpetually going through this ugly 
cycle and not necessarily getting better uh, mentally, but also just in terms of having safe housing here in one of the most expensive areas in the world, obviously. And there's another group, I would call it more sort of environmentally affected folks that uh, being first timers in a jail, uh, but I would also include in that group people that are detoxing through jail. Uh, again, we have a quite a bit of a, a painkiller and methamphetamine epidemic here in Northern California. Yeah. And oftentimes people will find themselves uh, essentially down a rabbit hole into this jail system and, and prison system. Uh, but particularly for our county jails, uh, the first time someone gets arrested, there's often a traumatic response to being in the jail lobby for the first time mm -hmm. and then being housed, particularly for our female clients or female inmate clients, mm -hmm. uh, being in dorms with anywhere from 35 to previously 75 other women. Uh, I, when I used to do groups in the dorms, I would ask them, you know, I bet none of you ever imagine yourself living with 32 other people or doing a group therapy with a bald guy and 15 other people. And, and, <laughs> and many of them would say, yeah, you know, and so I think it's sort of this interesting dichotomy of, you know, this, this, the system that continues to cycle people through mm -hmm. until frankly their demise. And then this other crew of folks that possibly are at risk and sometimes end up in this first bucket, yeah. uh, but then they have a difficult time sort of re refining, rediscovering themselves after they leave custody. Mm -hmm. uh, since, you know, typically people don't spend a terrible amount of long time in the county jail system beyond um, ideally six to 12 months, but sometimes I know it goes a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. So that answer makes sense. It's basically almost like two, two, two and a half buckets of uh, people groups that uh, really, particularly for the first group that uh, I've worked a good amount of my career with mm -hmm. uh, criminal justice populations. And uh, that, that is the group that, that is quite the saddest to observe and while supporting obviously, but to observe uh, this interminable sort of decline yeah. Uh, given that they have to interact and not have that many advocates in the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in what you said too about people who really feel traumatized by that kind of introduction to the system. Like all of a sudden you're in this place with all these other people who are having a really rough time and, you know, th things aren't pretty. And so do you feel like uh, when you're working in that context, are you dealing with a lot of trauma? Yeah, uh, you mean for myself or for the the folks that are in the <laughs> probably chair? both. I meant for the people, but you probably get some yeah, secondary yeah. trauma too. Um, yeah, there's there's really uh, out of respect for my my people in custody that that work in custody, my my sheriff's friends as well as my mental health friends. I'll, I'll just give a, a general description for folks. Uh, if you uh, particularly are our male uh, orientation, you are brought into uh, any number of holding tanks, uh, holding cells. Or if you're well considered well enough, you'll often wait in a lobby and be seen by a nurse. Uh, but the the room itself, um, you know, there, there's a sort of a running joke in the jails. Uh, I, I I love cold weather. I, for some reason, I love cold weather. But the the temperature, I believe, is is usually kept very low in order to prevent any sort of bacterial viral sort of spread. So you have this essentially ice box of a large room of a lobby uh, where many men are interviewed by people like myself if they are primarily at risk to themselves or other people, um, if they have any sort of special affiliations as determined by uh, the sheriffs, and then uh, primarily around mental health needs, because again, back to that first bucket of people, they mm -hmm. will often uh, relapse on their drugs of choice, typically methamphetamines, and then need something to offset that, that, that drug uh, uh, intoxication uh, while, while they come into custody before they act out or before they further decline. Uh, the, the term they use is decompensate, but I like decline as just a yeah. mm -hmm. better description. On the female side, and this this will highlight 
perhaps we will touch upon just the disparities between uh, men and women, but the, the women's lobby is smaller, obviously, and I think the logic is that there are just more men arrested in general, but the space, at least the last time I was there at the jails in uh, 2020, uh, the space is smaller, uh, much more confined, and so when you talk about trauma uh, vicariously and, and also people that experience it there, um, oftentimes the most difficult times were when I was interviewing uh, female clients with the sheriffs there, and then you might have the one person that's screaming louder than any other person in the lobby. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's hard to approximate anything that, you know, other than going to a sporting event where you're cheering for the opposite team. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the level of like the noise uh, comparatively. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, I, I'm huge on terms of trauma informed treatment and, you know, having toxic noise around really is. Uh, it, it can affect people's not just their hearing, mm-hmm. uh, but their central nervous system functioning and their sympathetic nervous system functioning. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for those of us who are fortunate to have a break room to go back to, we could at least escape the noise for a while. But then having to go back into the uh, mental health interviews uh, in that area was often uh, difficult for both the sheriffs and uh, inmates, as well as the mental health staff, as well as the nursing staff. So think of it as a collective trauma experience yeah. by, by everyone. Yeah, well, I didn't. I never even realized that that was, you know, one of one of the first experiences that people would have going into that. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But what kinds of uh, treatments? So, say somebody's there in the jail for six to twelve months, as you said. What what kinds of treatment or activities are they going to participate in during that time? Sure. Uh, Thankfully, um, I'll start with what's available now compared to, let's say, when I started in May 2016. Thankfully, uh, the mental health management has done a, a wonderful job of, of building a, a medical record management system that, that's robust enough to handle uh, uh, you know, more business, so to speak. Um, before, you know, I recall uh, very, very, few, very many times in my first few months, um, just paper, paper referrals, and if they happen to get lost, then we wouldn't get to see them. Uh, so sort of very uh, draconian methods that have since been expanded. And then um, I started off as a crisis mental health person. And so if you can imagine what that sounds like, it is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Interviewing uh, people that were designated as uh, perhaps worthy of mental health services coming in Mm -hmm. at intake. And then also for folks that were suffering uh, from acute sort of distress, obviously jail, um, there's different sort of security housings and there's there's different um, designations for people based off of whether it's gang affiliation or um, sex offender risk, that, that sort of stuff. And so uh, oftentimes we would take referrals uh, in our new system and then uh, the management was, was responsible for working with the staff to determine who would serve what, what areas. And so that sort of evolved, uh, I think, around 2017, 18, 19 into uh, you know, when I first started for six months, I was recruited pretty heavily to something called the BHT. And I, I kind of wondered what the BHT was and it's a sort of behavioral health teams. Mm-hmm. So I think of them as roving teams that served uh, neighborhoods in the jails. Um, and so at least here in Santa Clara County, there are two, there are two county jails. One is main jail in downtown San Jose, uh, nearest to the airport. And then there's a second jail called Elmwood Correctional Facility for lower security folks uh, in Milpitas. And so I spent quite a bit of time shuttling back and forth between uh, the two facilities. But uh, so there's the mental health intake at at intake, and it's primarily to get uh, them in front of a psychiatrist and possibly psychologist for testing uh, and apparently medication uh, regimen prescriptions. 
and then uh, the crisis method, and then the BHT teams were essentially constructed to provide more on the ground support for, for, for high-risk areas in the jail. And so uh, here's where I will say, uh, unfortunately, there was a inmate death, uh, I believe well before I, or before I came along in 2016, mm-hmm. of a severely mentally ill inmate who was beaten to death by, um, neglectfully by, by several officers. And they were since uh, prosecuted and sent to prison. Uh, but as a result of that, they opened up a lot of funding for mental health uh, workers to come into the jails, and that's how I ended up there uh, initially. Uh, and then as the uh, revenue came, or not the revenue, sorry, that's the wrong term, but as the uh, monies came in to provide for more services, I think that's where the behavioral health concept came to be. Mm-hmm. And so it, I would just say prof- personally and professionally, maybe to both my benefit and detriment, I tend to be a late adopter of requests like being, uh, uh, you know, being recruited to different teams. And so I waited for a while because I frankly wanted to get better at my job and, and go around different areas of the jail and support folks. I, I tend to be more idealist in that way. Um, but when I did join the BHT team, um, I specifically wanted to work with uh, low security or regular security women in dorms uh, because I saw, at least for me, I, I see the world probably a little, a little differently than most folks, but I saw an opportunity to provide uh, both counseling services while reducing a large amount of what I would call crisis referrals. Yeah. So I saw this opportunity to edify a gr- large, gr- larger group of people mm-hmm. through therapy and follow-up, mm-hmm. then eliminate uh, eliminate altogether sort of, when I say, I, there's no such thing as a needless referral, but I'm, I, what I suggest is that there's folks that uh, see, let's say, hey, how come Ann got to get a counselor? I need one too, right? Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes when someone would come out and, and ask them, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Uh, at times, depending on who came out, Right to see to see the inmates, uh, they would turn them down. So there was an inefficient system that I saw there. Mm-hmm. That, that I I wanted to take the chance and opportunity to uh, provide more deeper support, but also coverage for the particular neighborhood I was in. Yeah. And uh, so I had had a pretty good thing going there for about eighteen to twenty four months. Um, was doing anywhere from three to four groups a week, averaging uh, fifty to seventy five uh, inmates per per group, meaning you know for the three groups. And then also as a follow-up to those that requested, you know, individual therapy. Uh, and obviously, let me describe the individual therapy. Um, some folks, you know, who are in jail are comfortable providing full therapy sessions. You know, I have a good friend uh, who provided uh, trauma therapy using EMDR. Mm-hmm. And so it would often be quick, quick stuff. And then some folks would, um, frankly, do just risk assessments. You know, do you feel like hurting yourself or other people? Are you surviving your doorman? And then for me, I was probably somewhere closer to my friend's thing, which is where um, not trauma trained, by the way, in the EMDR or brain spotting just yet. Uh, uh, COVID kind of killed all of that uh, yeah. uh, uh, CEU type of stuff for me. But um, given the opportunity to pull uh, a female inmate out of the dorm, just to talk in a, I mean, the, the offices I had in typically were either the laundry room or the <laughs> mat storage room for the beds. <laughs> Or in a converted cell that was like eight by eight, yeah. uh, often teaming with ants and other Ugh. vermin sometimes. Uh, and so I just wanted to provide a level of dignity and, and respect, as well as a lot of my colleagues, to provide dignity and respect uh, to these inmates for that period of time. And so often the sessions wouldn't go any longer than 10 to 20 minutes only because, again, part of the logic is if they're going back into a dorm, 
the other people want to know, hey, what did you talk to him about? Like, why are we in there so long? You know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's it's weird how that logic works in this system, but mm-hmm. uh, and so the the system I constructed with my manager's help uh, really worked for a while uh, up until right around COVID started. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, not to put all the blame on the COVID period, but once um, once April twenty no, uh, March of twenty twenty came around, um, that sort of went where the things went off the rails for a lot of the in-custody treatment stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's, I've been out of there for a while uh, and I, I don't pretend to know what's happening specifically, but I know there's a heavy focus on severely mentally ill folks uh, that I, as odd as it sounds on your podcast, don't necessarily agree with because in essence, the the research supports that basically uh, pills and groups do support that particular population. But what I'm seeing is more and more people falling into that first bucket of people Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I've always geared my, my sort of creative thinking in my career towards um, interventions that do more prevention than, you know, that, that whole thing of uh, an ounce of prevention versus a pound of treatment mm-hmm. sort of approach. And I think mental health does need to head in that direction while obviously having good people like yourself and myself helping out severely mentally ill. But I, at times it was painted as Gary's only going to help out. Uh, the, the people that are well, but I'm like, who's well in here? We're all in jail. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you yeah. know, someone's been on meth for five years. And so I, I think the idea is that, uh, and you remember the old GAF score system, right? That the, the global assessment of functioning scale from zero to a hundred, right? Mm-hmm. In my head, I, I think for someone that's much more lower in the scale, so long as there is uh, prescribed medications, antipsychotics that can help or mood stabilizers that can help them. And then you have great folks like my, my colleague, Tom, that can do trauma therapy. I think that that met the requirement to be quite fair. Again, I'm not in management, but um, but I think we lost a lot of people through the cracks, particularly uh, our female inmates that would often I would see them skid towards uh, their wellness decreasing to where they would end up in that severely mentally ill bucket over a period of time. And that's one of the tragic things to Mm -hmm. to observe people do over a period of time is they don't get better, but in fact, they get far, far worse. Yeah. Well, I think that we see that there needs to be people – uh, therapists or other professionals that are helping each of these different kinds of people, like uh, everybody needs help or they wouldn't be there. But I think similarly to what you're, you're thinking, you have to max- maximize your energy, your effort on where it's going to do the most good or have the the chance to change or or increase the potential of these certain women Similarly, like when I worked in schools, I started feeling like, gosh, I can see this kid, I'll pull him out of his class for 15 minutes and do something. But if I could get the parents for an hour, that might make bigger difference in the family system. So it seems similar. Yeah. And it seems like we're aligned in terms of taking a systems approach. Again, I'm would like to be trained in Bowen family systems, but I'd like to say I'm an adherent to Bowen family systems. Yeah. Um, and so I, I not only see the person that's in there, uh, but, you know, typically for my female inmates, they're, they're a mother. Mm-hmm. They often were an auntie. There's sometimes I had grandmothers in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so their they're only connections to anything meaningful uh, would obviously be each other. But, uh, you know, I, I saw the opportunity to provide, you know, emotional intelligence services. Um, I think yeah. one of the cooler things that I had the chance to do with my manager's blessing several Christmases ago was, you know, knowing that uh, how much we need to be around safe people to have proximity to people um, started a grief group during the month of December wow. uh, for, for the female inmates. And so we did away with all the other, you know, group components and workbooks and stuff, but just did a four week 
a short-term group modality related to grief. And so one of the interesting thing was, you know, we'd start as a group together and a big table. And then uh, just creatively, I, I put a table for grieving. So there would be plenty of tissues and well, in this case, toilet paper or any sort of uh, napkins <laughs> that they could cobble up and they got to cry there. Right. And then there was another table that I was frankly most proud of where they got to write letters to uh, their children. Right. Because, you know, one of the, the oddest things that, that I've seen just from as a clinician is, you know, they get arrested and uh, there is a stigma with mommy getting sent off or auntie or grandma getting sent off to jail mm-hmm. or a four-year-old that doesn't know what jail is. But I said, I want you all thinking about the four to six-year-old or eight-year-old or even 18-year-old at home that desperately misses their mom or their sister or their yeah. you know, family member. And so we do need to, you know, and I sometimes I do the reality therapy very well and sometimes it backfires, but the reality <laughs> therapy there was essentially you have all this time. I'm only doing one group a week with you, so write write the letters. Take the 90 minutes to, to write letters. There was a third uh, table for meditation, and then a fourth table for. Um, granted, I'm not trained in EMDR or brain spotting per se, mm-hmm. uh, but one of the nice creative things I was known as a stuffed animal guy at the jail because <laughs> I would bring stuffed animals that were you know something like perhaps something like this, where uh, nothing that could be used as a weapon on this thing, and so they would be able to self soothe by holding a stuffed animal. And so there's something about the production of oxytocin and, mm-hmm. and vasopressin when you're holding onto something safe. And for those of you that can't, aren't seen, but you're just listening, he's holding um, Doug from the movie Up, right? Yes. Yeah. And um, that's the dog that can speak with the collar. <laughs> it's just a, just a nice stuffed animal that that's, looks very huggable. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the creative thing is, you know, Coles would have a sale on all their stuffed animals that we got Christmas <laughs> every year. So I loaded up on these guys and would bring them into the jails during groups. And the the both heartening thing, but also the most saddest thing I would see was, was watching uh, some of these hardcore gang-affiliated women. And then we'd do a process group, and all of a sudden they'd be holding a stuffed animal and nurturing the stuffed animal as they would a baby or, or a daughter or a son. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's that's where in terms of uh, for, for your uh, – uh, podcast supporters, I, I think one of the most important things is we are social creatures. We are tactile creatures. Mm-hmm. We need safety. Uh, and so I think that was one of the things I was most proud of is that this guy who has nothing to do with anything comes in and, uh, you know, supported by my manager and, and team to, to do groups and to provide services where they process, right? I might come up with a few topics, but yeah. essentially I was responsible for providing a safe space inside of a, a inmate dorm Mm-hmm. With the other folks sleeping or doing their thing, but maintaining a quiet neighborhood, right? Uh, but allowing anywhere from 12 to 20 women to say, hey, listen, like maybe I shouldn't be taking my man's charges. You know, uh, maybe I shouldn't be here. How okay. can I, you know, what can I do at court? How can I best uh, advocate for myself at court? Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to provide the women the empowerment themselves to do that crucial work to uplift each other. You know, we had a, a run where, um, a lot of white collar crimes with uh, Asian people, which I know that's that's another stigma in terms of Asian people don't go to jail, but there was quite a few people that would end up in jail. So they would start their little ESL sort of thing, English as a second language thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are also primarily Spanish speaking women that wanted to come to group. And so you'd have someone that would sacrifice their time to be their interpreter yeah. uh, when they wanted to listen or share. So, yeah. so it was really sort of this interesting kismet that happened uh, just out of accident to be quite fair. I don't take much credit for it, but I think once that opportunity opened up for itself, uh, that 
there were, I and many other folks in the in the teams uh, was were able to do this work uh, critically in the jails to to the populations that most uh, needed it. Most could benefit from it. Yeah. Um, that it seems interesting to me that. Well, I mean, mostly what I know about jail is from TV shows, right? So um, you you have a more personal experience of that, but it seems like it would be a, a very difficult place to be vulnerable. And when we're doing the counseling work, obviously you have to get vulnerable or you can't get down to the, the stuff you need to work through. Sure. But it sounds like through some of those methods that you were just describing that you gave them a place where they could cry. Like it might not be safe to cry in other parts of the jail, or it might not be safe to kind of tune out and do some of that trauma work uh, because you have to have your guard up. You know? Correct. Right. And I, I want to, two brief stories. I, I know you've got your questions to go through and, but That's okay. I like uh, stories. you know, one, one, one particular, uh, you know, someone had found it, found out that they were sentenced to quite a bit of time beyond the six to 12 months. So they, they found out they were going to be there for a while. And so of course there was um, along with the crisis model of referrals, there are striations of urgentness for better use of the term. And so uh, for this one, people were concerned that she would self-harm based off of the charges and uh, the sentence. So I uh, went out there to see her. Um, you know, she's she's crying, but she's also starting to convulse. And at, I think any normal person at that time, including myself, would have just called over the nurse and said, hey, can you please take this woman's vitals and, and be able to support? Uh, but in the moment, and again, I, I think I'm speaking with a fellow Christian, right? So uh, I put out my hand. I said, you can, you know, I'm literally doing this and feel free to grab my hand. And again, I'm a tough guy. I played football and basketball. And so she didn't have to, she didn't need me to ask. And so she grabs my hand with both hands and violently holds on for dear life, almost as if she was reenacting a trauma mm-hmm. um, and does this for what felt like five minutes, but really it was probably more like 75 seconds and is holding on with both of her tiny hands, like just for dear life. And then after about 75 or 80 seconds, let's go, conducts herself, breathing the whole time. And it's almost like she did her own breathing exercise and says, okay, I'm okay. Can you walk me back? So that was one example of where using tactile stuff instead of me doing talk therapy at her, Mm -hmm. where I said, hey, and granted, I probably pre-COVID should have had a glove or something like that, but uh, I made sure to wash my hands uh, uh, fervently afterwards. But you see someone not being able to contain herself. Yeah able to grab something outside of herself uh yeah. you know something that is non-threatening uh, such as a guy's hand and literally ripping my hand off and then afterwards discovering i'm okay yeah i go back now and so similarly there was someone that uh, was grieving the loss of a family member and uh we'd spent quite it was a great session about 25 30 minutes and then i said let's say if her name was ann and I know you have to go back and so your eyes are bloodshot right now i'm going to give you a few moments to sort of rub your eyes out a bit um, I need you to sort of wipe your face because, you know, some of your uh, your face is a little bit kicked over. Um, and so it was, I was, what I was asking her to do was recompose herself mm-hmm. to where once she went back into the dorm, she could go back with her dignity, right? Because, um, again, it's not the nicest place. And so if, if Anne goes back crying, let's say, uh, for, the, for the audience, and all it takes is the one mean person in the dorm to start a fight with her and say, you bleep, 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 you weak, blah, 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 human being. Yeah knowing because uh, frankly some of them were either jealous that there was a counselor that would come out to help this person yeah. right so all these sort of interesting relational dynamics but mm-hmm. oftentimes if there were tears i would allow them to have the tears and then almost almost like a spigot saying hey i, I want you to be okay when you go back uh you know please compose yourself i'll give you two minutes i'll even go outside and 
step outside the door and, and obviously observe you. But then once you go back, uh, just pretend nothing happened. Right. Yeah. And of course you would not say that in a, I don't think I would say that in a private practice office to one of my patients, but I, I think in this case, because the risk is there yeah. to go back and to be harmed or to be ridiculed. You know, actually, I was thinking while you were saying that, that uh, I use this term, and I'm sure we heard it from one of our grad school professors, but but sometimes counseling makes you feel like you've been unzipped. And before you go back into your real life, sometimes you have to zip because even if you're not going into like a dorm, a prison dorm or something like that, you are going either back to your work day, back to your children, back to your spouse, back to whatever tasks you have to do for that day. And if you walk around feeling unzipped, you're just too vulnerable. And so I, I usually do, even in private practice, help people just take a minute. Like sometimes it will even be something stupid, like playing a round of Uno at the end of a session or talking about our favorite band or talk, you know, talking about something silly right at the end so that there's a moment of a lightness so that they can get that composure again to be able to attack the rest of their day. Correct. Yeah. No, I, I see your point. I, I want to validate that. And uh, I don't necessarily play Uno with my folks in private <laughs> practice, but um you know, I, I'm down a long hallway at, at the facility I'm at. And so I will often walk them out to the front door. Mm-hmm. And uh, at times, you know, uh, again, I, I I probably need to specialize at some point in, in like suicide and self-harm assessments. I just haven't gotten around to it. But um, I will ask them like, hey, I know it's a 20 minute drive home. Can you text me when you get home? Right. And just sort of creating that linkage between mm-hmm. uh, my office and, and their home and then the expectation they'll come back in. A week or two or three that we'll we'll resume where we left off yeah. or maybe we don't resume where we left off but we, i let them drive sort of drive the car of, of the therapy session yeah you're yeah. right you're, you're spot on right mm-hmm. and even for you as a therapist to have some of that time to recompose yourself if it's been a difficult session sure yeah i think if anything for, for my folks that want to do this work and eventually want to work in custody i think one of the benefits of I would say probably more so a county jail system than a prison system is, you know, there is a long walk back to the office or there's a long <laughs> walk back to a different part of the campus, particularly at Elmwood. And so you can recompose yourself and do your breathing mm-hmm. as you're walking. And I think the, <clears throat> the thing to point out for me is I, I really cherish and love doing the groups because again, it, it's, it's nice to see sort of humanity come together in that moment, but you're right. It's exhausting. And so typically after the groups, I would, I'll spend a bit of, bit of time in meditation and walk back to my office and then rest a bit before going to lunch. But because oftentimes these groups are right around lunchtime, yeah. uh, but there, there needs to be that uh, uh, zipping up uh, literally and figuratively. Yeah. I don't know if, did you ever work at the Christian counseling center when you were an intern? Yeah, I'm actually still, still there part-time. You, you are there. Okay. Uh, at the Bascom Avenue location. I uh, know, you know, for some reason I, I ended up in Mountain View and now it's the Sunnyvale Los Altos site. So okay. it's interesting the dichotomy between the Sunnyvale and Los Altos sites. Uh, it's yes. sort of like Beverly Hills versus uh, West <laughs> LA, but um, I mean, you can probably edit that out. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to cut in here. Yeah, question. no, that's funny. Uh, well, just for our listeners, there was a Christian counseling um, center that a lot of us as interns kind of start getting our hours at. It was right up the street from our campus, and my apartment was right across the street from the counseling center. And so even though I was, you know, a beginning intern working the worst hours in the worst offices, <laughs> my husband would walk over in the evening after I was done counseling, and we would walk back through the dark back to my neighborhood. And that time of just walking after seeing clients was, uh, the time that I needed to decompress. And so it's, it's good for whatever kind of stressful work you, you do to have that kind of moment. Certainly. I, I, I wonder if there's application for your audience, those that are doing ministry, like we need to not book ourselves yeah. session after session, after session, after session, but actually build in the uh, space or at the end of all the sessions, then mm -hmm. to go have a nice breakfast or to, to be with your spouse or be with, with your lover or partner. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's a good euphemism for, for all the work that we do. Yeah, that's great. So I do want to ask you, since you brought up ministry, <laughs> I know you're, you're active, you preach sometimes, you have um, different ministry roles. Um, did you ever get to have like a ministry moment and the things that you're doing, caring for people, that is, that is ministry in itself. But sometimes I think in this situation, you might not be able to get really, like really open about the gospel or something like that. But can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I would say uh, just for your audience's sake and, and uh, frankly, friendly reminder for myself, but, you know, since we are licensed in the state of California as marriage and family therapist, we, uh, generally, I, people do not know uh, that I'm a Christian, um, although people figure it out for some reason that, you know, that people think I have those words written on my forehead yeah. for some odd reason. But um, I think people figure it out that either because I was a, a for, this is the inmate's terms, but a goody two shoes or that I was a square, um, even though I look like a, I'm built like a probation officer or a sheriff's, but um, I think <laughs> they, they determined my tenderness, you know, was probably I was in a different field. And so. Uh, when, if anything, I'd like to talk briefly outside of custody, the, the ministry moment that uh, I'm going through, and it's an interesting story behind it. Um, I was on my way to a job interview uh, last last October, so a year, almost a year and a half ago. And, um, you know, the, the irony is, and I think, and you probably know the situation in terms of knowing my personal history, uh, but I get this random text for someone that I was interested in in grad school for quite some time and thought we were going to end up together for, for a while. Um, and so this person says, can you go speak at my friend's church? Right. And so then I'm right about to go into an interview. I'm all like dressed to the nines. And, and so I briefly said, sure, I'll text after the interview. Right. And, uh, without revealing the name of the uh, congregation or the church, it is a local church here in the Bay area, uh, where, um, sadly an elder ran off with a ton of money. And so that devastated the church. And so, uh, in that sense, when we talk about ministry moments, I've been preaching there almost every month since. October 2020. And, you know, to be fair, I, I think, you know, God requires a humility about the work. And so I think that's probably why he's given you this blessing and given me my blessing um, in that sense. But uh, doing a sermon a month, someone said, that's almost like a part-time gig. And I was like, you know, you're right. right. But I think part of it is seeing the devastation that happens when you have a selfish uh, church leader and, and is frankly a spouse, um, utilize funds for the kingdom for their own selfish, greedy desires. Uh, that's sort of hard me to sort of speak to uh, the congregation. And so maybe not a ministry moment, like I don't do altar calls or anything like that. But, um, you know, someone just sort of told me in passing, 
pay one because they're still pastorless right now. And so they will have guest speakers come in all the time. And apparently when I go there, that's usually when most of the teenagers come out to service. So it's got to mean something. I don't know if that means I'm entertaining. You're or, the cool pastor. I'm huh? the cool guy with the sunglasses. But um, but that, that stuff matters to me, that, that essentially um, you and I and inherit me were at some point in that role in the chair uncertain about what the future beheld and seeing this crazy old guy run off with, you know, $8 million of church funds, you know, that, that sort of stuff. And I, easily that could, that could send someone heading off in a different direction. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, I think where we can intervene kingdom wise, and I'll get back to the custody stuff in a moment, but um, to say, Hey, I'm willing to come speak so long as the church doesn't feel like I'm being apostate or, you know, not preaching from the word. And thankfully I've had uh, Dr. Tuck's, classes at Western Seminary. So I, I know, I hope I'm not uh, messing with things. And so I, and so that's what I'm saying. Like the last 15, 16 months have been both interesting and sometimes challenging given uh, in our culture, it's an Asian church. And so oftentimes you get these stone-faced congregationists. And so, uh, but on the other end, I couldn't turn down an opportunity to, to uplift people um, even though this person rejected me anyway, that's all different. So maybe a different <laughs> podcast about uh, dating rejection, but um, we remain friends to this day. But uh, just to have the opportunity that someone trust me to speak to this congregation and not make it about myself or try to be Mr. Splash guy, that sort of thing, uh, that, that means a lot. And then in custody, I think in the moments where people ask, so what's your spiritual journey? Then I could say, well, I can't speak exactly to what it is, but... Uh, it does involve the old scriptures, you know, and so I'll use sort of pepper in terms that that will make sense for a lot of people that have grown in the church. Mm -hmm. But it also leaves some freedom for the agnostics and the atheists and the undecided folks to say, well, Gary's not trying to proselytize me, but I can talk to this guy. I, I can talk to this guy about my stuff. Yeah. So this kind of my, my wife says I, I sort of uh, uh, occupy a very marginal space in society. Mm. And I kind of revel in it. I kind of do enjoy that because, again, it, I, I think ideally in most days, I think it would be what Jesus would demand of you and me and is to be present, but also not to overwhelm people with at least my my version of the gospel or that mm. sort of stuff. Just to be loved and to be held in the moment uh, by someone that doesn't want anything from them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's, that's what I was working around, too. Okay. Uh, that's interesting that your wife used that term marginal. Um can you say a little bit more about that? What is that little slice? Sure. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I have the CCC thing, the Christian Counseling Center thing, um, and I don't advertise. So it's interesting that people work word of mouth from some other mm -hmm. person in the Christian community. And again, the, the easy, the, 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 the risk is that someone can get big headed for that. So that's, that's one thing I try to make sure I keep in check is that, you know, typically I don't advertise because I'm too busy with, you know, uh, talking with you this hour or going to the jails or, you know, teaching in, in classes, which is really where I most come alive. And so I'm teaching at a Catholic school, a Jesuit school and a secular business school. And I find that I'm essentially me wherever I'm at that school. And, and the students have tended to large by and large really appreciate that I support them and that I try to come across uh, in a way that sort of, you know, I don't, um, aside from the textbooks, I don't, bring in any content that's older than four or five years old. Mm. Uh, I, I want the stuff to be present for them as, as it was for me at Western. Uh, so I want to create, create this like magical experience for, for grad school students, but also in the jails to make also a magical experience, but something that 
for folks, especially still suffering from uh, detox and withdrawals. And so it's it's a, what I what I think she meant by marginal is like I get to go to these places thanks to the, the doors that God's opened mm-hmm. to be me, to be loving, and to be caring, yeah. uh, and hopefully to be edifying and. It, it works, you know, for the most part, it works. Aside from the few times I've encountered opposition, um, you know, I had an unfortunate set of circumstances cause my departure from uh, the custody system, but now I'm back in a different and even better capacity as uh, as a professor there. And so, wow. so in other words, when the doors have closed, uh, of course, I've been hurt about it and felt rejected, but I oftentimes, you know, have experienced an even bigger blessing and uh, not materially, obviously, but like bigger blessing and opportunities uh, from those closed doors. And so it, it allows me to occupy quite a bit of rooms that I would not necessarily maybe occupy if I was uh, working as a pastor or working as a youth minister in a, yeah. in a church setting. So yeah. I think the right term would be parachurch. I don't think it, meant, it was meant to mean like marginally marginal, but mm-hmm. uh, perhaps parachurch settings where people feel. That you have access to some settings that a pastor might not have. Certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Although I'd like them to, but again, I, I, it just speaks to. Uh, I think I imagine this is probably your attitude as well. Wherever the work is that God has, right? That's mm-hmm. that's what we do and where we go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even raising kids and sending them to public school, it's like there's got to be Christians coming into some of these situations that are maybe not always God honoring, or there may be a lot of hurting people. And so we're going to continue to do public school for our kids until God sends us otherwise, or otherwise, because that's, that's part of our mission. Just like it's your mission to be around all some really broken people in incarceration. And we're around broken people in a different setting. <laughs> correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's, very, there's fewer people that can see, the uh, the connecting lines there. And I think I appreciate that about you. Mm, yeah. I, um, I did have like some other questions for you, but I feel like we've pretty much covered some stuff and I don't want to overuse your time. So I want to ask you our, our wrapping up question, which is what are you doing for soul care? For soul care. Um, I, I love the term. I, I wish there, that you, you would trademark that and, and make it uh, pretty cool for your ministry. Um, I have a, a go-to list of uh, podcasts that I listen to, both edifying and sometimes irreverent. I did listen to Bob Saget's uh, podcast before he passed on earlier this yes. year. So yeah. uh, I'm very fascinated with uh, the human condition as a Christian person. And so that that, that lens definitely gets put on. Um, so I have a go-to list of sports podcasts. You know I love sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I also blog for a professional, uh, the number one fan site for professional basketball team so uh, for instance i'm doing the game recap uh, for them tomorrow afternoon wow. and so thankfully my wife has let me do that and and also just speaking of uh how great my wife is so we do a sports trip every year uh so i i forget what part of the country you're in but we're going to nashville in uh, four weeks mm-hmm. uh presumably to check in on on my my career mentor as well as uh, uh see a hockey game and a basketball game so we, awesome. we travel Granted, COVID has put a huge crimp in that. Um, and then we have these 16 awesome nieces and nephews and godchildren that, uh, you know, it gets expensive during the holidays, but the rest of the year, <laughs> um, you know, I had my my twin nieces and my other niece uh, hop onto my class the other day just to say hello to the students. And it's very adorable. And one of them said, uh, one of the students said, thank you for up- uplifting my serotonin, you know, seeing the <laughs> kids laugh and smile at them. Uh, so I, I, I look for those moments. Um, other stuff. Uh, 
I have this 80s YouTube channel, so I, you know, uh, not that I made the, the the videos, but I'm just compiling uh, best 80s songs uh, and just putting them on my own little channel for people to listen to. And I don't take any credit for it other than like perusing the Billboard Top 40 for the whole decade and picking the stuff that I love. Uh, so a variety of interests to help me stay stay sober and sane and uh, and to be present, you know, for my family and and all that stuff. Yeah, that's great. I love that you you have that wide variety because a lot of times people will, when I ask the question, the the typical, you know, the Sunday school answer is, well, I read my Bible every day. And <laughs> I assume you do that if you're preaching and stuff, but it's interesting to have like the variety of the sports and the 80s music and the kids. And it, it's just things that make you feel like more alive and more relaxed and more present. So. I play Animal Crossing with my niece. <laughs> Uh, so again, I don't know what I'm doing half the time, but uh, she's often coming to my island and, and reviewing my work and my messing <laughs> with my, my OCD when it comes to collecting fruits and, and stuff <laughs> like that. But uh, but yeah, I think the idea is uh, without, you know, granted having good people in my life like yourself and other close friends from Western, um, I, I just realize how, how heavy the burden our work is at times, but also the necessity to keep in touch of people's Facebooks and to, to say hello every once in a while. And yeah. we've had some folks that have suffered a lot of physical maladies and, and me medical maladies that we, mm -hmm. we check up on. We don't, we don't ignore them. Right. So I think that that sort of it, that interwovenness is so critical to what I do. Uh, and, and I, um, last example would be, you know, when I had my gallbladder out uh, in 2016, um, I didn't, I thought for sure no one would come visit me at the hospital. And so my wife puts out an APB through my Facebook and, my pastor shows up, all my good friends show up, all my groomsmen, uh, people showed up. And so, and so I figured, okay, so if I'm just laying in the bed with a body part taken out, cause I've eaten frankly too much fatty food most of my life, um, and fried chicken, obviously, but, uh, that I need to sort of shore obviously. up. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, I need to shore up my, uh, ability to be there and present for other people, uh, since, since, since this is my career. Right. And so I've had these sort of moments that frankly God has provided. And as I, I think this is one of those moments as well. It's just a firm reminder of why I do what I do and why you do what you do, Anne, and, and that we are doing worthwhile things. And it's, it's heartening to hear that. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's really sad, Gary. We both had our gallbladders out after grad school. And I can remember like having breaks on Saturday classes and going and eating fatty food with you. <laughs> <laughs> I, hey, I still I still go there sometimes. That's in our place, but yeah. Yeah, we we did it to ourselves, huh? Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you too, Gary, for staying in touch because pretty much I can count every year you are the first person to wish me happy birthday on Facebook. <laughs> I, I mean, not this year, because I've just been slow about it since the accident, but... Um, yeah, well, it was like three weeks ago, and I was like, where's my Gary Kwan birthday greeting? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll get back to it in 23, but okay, uh, yeah, I've, just, I've just sort of taken some time off from the birthdays, and I, I yeah. hope that doesn't end any friendships unnecessarily. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I do appreciate you checking in. So. Yeah. yeah well, thank you I do, so much. I care for you, yeah. Thank yeah. you. I care for you too. And I thank you for just being uh, available to do this. I know you're very busy with, uh, it sounds like you have about 14 different jobs, <laughs> but I do appreciate you coming here today and sharing some of that, um, your experiences with us. Anytime, Anna, and I hope your audience is uh, edified and encouraged by our time together. Thank you. The Soul Grit Podcast is a production of Soul Grit Resources. 
You can find more at soulgritresources.com or on the socials at soulgritresources. You can email me at info at soulgritresources.com.